Welcome to the Synaxis Podcast. A Synaxis is a liturgical gathering. It can also refer to an unveiling event. The Synaxis Podcast is a weekly gathering hosted by yours truly, Scott Jones, for the purpose of finding the life-giving healing word of the gospel and the words of the weekly lectionary passages. Join myself and a guest each week as we explore the lectionary text together. This is the place for gospel-rich, grace-saturated, and a properly worldly lens on the week's lectionary passages, all in 25 minutes or less. My guest is Greg Strawbridge. He is the pastor of All Saints Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. He's authored and edited a number of books, including The Case for Covenant Communion and The Case for Covenantal Infant Baptism. He also runs WordMP3.com. Greg, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. You are coming to us live to tape from Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where the, there are beautiful rolling hills and many rolling Amish, but not rolling generally with combustible engines. <laughs> That's right. Lots of Amish folks on the road the last couple of days, I noticed. And we have some interesting passages in the lectionary this week. I always say that. I feel like one day I'm going to say there are some boring passages in the lectionary this week that shouldn't even be in the Bible, but this will not be that week. Proverbs 1, 20 through 33, early on in the book of Proverbs, we have wisdom. Greg is crying out to us in the street. She is raising her voice. She cries out, how simple ones, will you, how, how long are simple ones will you want to be simple, asking to give heed to the proof and there's this this is the woman that is calling out to the children of god right there's sort of two women in proverbs there's sort of the woman in the the woman of the night or so to speak or the and the and the lady wisdom who's and they're competing for the ears and the affections of the readers and hearers it seems like yeah that's right and a very interesting thing about proverbs it starts as a young man seeking wisdom but if you look at the last proverb, of course, it's a woman, a beautiful woman, who is uh, wise and demonstrates her wisdom in all that she does. The Proverbs 31 uh, example, which is kind of paradigmatic of what we see throughout the Bible, which is you start as a son and you grow to be a bride. And that's a, a big macro theme through the Bible and it sh- certainly shows up in, in Proverbs. I wrote a little devotional about Proverbs called 30 Days in the Proverbs. Um, a couple of week, couple of years ago, it's available on wordmp3.com that goes through a bunch of themes. And that's probably the best way to read Proverbs. Here we have the theme of wisdom, and wisdom shows up many times. But there are lots of other themes, money, uh, riches, your you know relationship with other people. Um, <laughs> the nagging wife is a theme, apparently, in Proverbs. But this one is wisdom. It cries out in the street, um, give heed to my reproof. There's a lot of reproof for those who do not like knowledge. Uh, Notice, because they hated knowledge and did not choose the fear of the Lord. And of course, the fear of the Lord, beginning of wisdom theme, is is also there too. Yeah, and I like the way you frame that, that that this is, there's a way to read Proverbs here is almost like Pilgrim's Progress, right? That this is the journey, the graced journey of faith from this life, from glory to glory, right? From grace to glory. That that you go, this is almost like Irenaeus, right? This theme of the great church, early church fathers, this theme of maturation and growing up into the fullness of, of our humanity. You know, the, the Irenaeus says the, the glory 
of God is man fully alive. Yes. And, and as opposed to sort of reading this like Ben Franklin's kind of tidbits for wisdom and how to get ahead in life, which I think is often how it is read or when it's preached, right. which sort of makes it just another piece of worldly wisdom. But there, this is a different kind of wisdom, right? There, although there are things that anybody, I suppose, that had a little bit of intuition about the way the world works would understand, and yet it can't be reduced to that. There's something bigger than that going on here. Right. And, and the thing we have to keep in mind as Christian interpreters of the Bible is Jesus himself claims in Matthew 24 that all Scripture is speaking of him, and specifically his death and resurrection and proclamation to the nations of the gospel. So how is it that Proverbs fits in that? Well, I think it doesn't fit in that as a series of moralisms, although you know we do need wisdom for practical living. That's helpful. But I think when we see the overall pattern of Proverbs, that it goes from a son to a bride, then we see, okay, there's something going on here that's very consistent with the rest of the Bible. God is forming a people for himself. So Ephesians 5 would tell us that uh, Christ is the the head of the church, but Christ himself is the is the groom and the church is the bride. And so we see that theme coming through uh, Proverbs, even though it has a lot more, uh, again, practical examples of, of our relationships and what we should value and shouldn't value. Those things come up, but the overall pattern shows that demonstration of son to bride. Yeah, I've heard Tim Keller say that when he comes to moral the moral injunctions, the imperative in Scripture, he often asks, what is this task, what is this passage asking of me? Why can't I do it? How does Christ fulfill it, and how does he do it through me? And it's almost, it's going to be an interesting exercise to do with Proverbs, to look at this and like, what what is, what's the way of life, and why do I, in, in my waywardness, wander off this path and heed the voice of the wrong of the wrong woman calling and then and how is christ the personification of that wisdom and how does he call me you know and grace me into it it's an interesting kind of approach alongside the the child to bride approach yeah let me comment as we transition to other passages so the psalm of the day is psalm 19 and psalm 19 has an interesting structure to it the first part of it it's all about creation and how it is that God demonstrates his revelation through creation. The heavens declare the glory of God. And then the second part is the law of the Lord. So you have this wisdom theme again of verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, revives the soul, and so forth. Then the last section, you have it going to the servant. Um, after it says, you know, more desired than gold, um, much fine gold, that is the, the law of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, and judgments of the Lord. Then you have... By your, these, your servant is enlightened, and we have that important verse, you know, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. That's the very last verse of Psalm 19. So again, captures that theme of wisdom leading to who we are um, and leading to God's revelation in his word. It's God's revelation in nature, God's revelation in his word, and God's revelation to his servant. It's just a goodbye. Children, well, cause their father's hell did slowly go by and feed them on your. On to the book of James, chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, for you know that the ones who will teach will be judged with greater strictness. We have that passage here, and then we have the related, I mean, segue, it, this 
famous passage about the tongue and how it's powerful. It's like a rudder. You look at this big ship and this tiny rudder guides it and that, you know, this the tongue is like that. It's like a fire, a big forest can be set aside, aflame by a spark. It only takes a spark, Greg, to get a fire going, That's right. says the camp song. And there's this injunction about the dangers of the tongue and how our speech can really, you know, both build up and be a blessing and also curse and destroy. Yeah. Yeah. And there's interesting stuff about James. Let me share my uh, very uh, minorly held position on who wrote the book of James. I'm thinking that James, the brother of John, the son of Zebedee, wrote the book of James, which this is the James that died in Acts chapter 12. So most commentators say brilliant things like this. This book was written too early to be written by James, the son of Zebedee. Of course, if you, that's a little bit of a uh, circular argument there. If you know when the book was written, you don't know when the book was written unless you know the author and some of those things like that. But oftentimes that's that's argued. But I think there's a good case to be made that that book was written very early and was written to the Jews in Jerusalem as persecution was starting to happen. Maybe the persecution around the time of Stephen up into Acts chapter 12. And, and you'll notice uh, the book of James internally um, – has to do with Jews. It doesn't have to do with Gentiles. There's no recognition of of Gentiles in the book, which is very interesting if it were written by James, the brother of Jesus, because James, the brother of Jesus, is a person who presides over the the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, which is all about Jews and Gentiles coming together and the issues there, as well as in Acts 21 and following, Paul comes back to Jerusalem. James is the one who says, you know, go to the temple, do a sacrifice, show them that you're not trying to destroy the law, and so forth. There's tons of example uh, that the brother of Jesus, James, uh, in Acts 15, James, that is, is referring to Jews and Gentiles together, whereas the book of James here doesn't have any recognition of, of Gentiles at all. So I think there's a good case to be made that it's written early by James, who is, remember, Peter, James, and John, one of the key leaders of the early church, and it's talking to Jews. And so here you have a situation where persecution has broken out. In any case, whoever wrote it and whenever it was written, persecution has broken out. And he's giving the admonition, don't become someone who's controlled by your words and who lets who lets that become like fire. Like it's a great forest fire set ablaze by a small fire. The tongue is a fire. And remember, like in persecution times, that's oftentimes it's the verbal stuff that becomes incendiary for everything else. In fact, you can see that in our own day with the various uh, factions in our country today, it's it's words that become, you know, those are fighting words. And that's, that's what James is saying. Don't don't be like this. And notice how what you say becomes the the guide, the tiller, uh, you know, the the rudder of of your actions. And then I think he's calling at the second part, look in yourself and realize that a spring does not pour forth both fresh and brackish water, does it? You know, can a fig tree yield olives or grapevine figs? No, no more than salt water can yield fresh, meaning that you've got to look inside yourself and realize you need to have trust in God. You need to have peace with God so that you don't let your words become incendiary and, and actually create more conflict than is necessary and especially create conflict in, in a time of persecution. If you really want to see a biblical example of not following this 
case, read Acts 21 and follow when Paul comes back to the temple. When they, there was, the whole city was in riot, they, a bunch of folks vowed, a bunch of Jews vowed because they thought Paul had taken Trophimus, an Ephesian, into the temple. They vowed that they would kill him, and they wouldn't eat until they kill him. Of course, Paul goes on his long journey to Rome at that point, so I don't know what happened to that vow. But that's an example of the kind of riotous behavior that James is directly addressing in this epistle in chapter 3. Yeah, and it's interesting that he often uses this double theme, don't be double-minded, right? They're the, they're this, there's this continue, continued kind of theme in James about serving two masters, you know, the God and the world. And so here we have this, it's not surprising, right, that you have this sense in which, hey, can the same tongue, you know, can this from the same spring bring forth, you know, two kinds of water, bad and good. And, and, and it's saying, no, right, that, that that that's not kind of characteristic of how these things work. But, but it's it is, but it's also true that, that you know, we we realize the Christian life is often, is Simo used to set Picado, right? We are, we are people of often two minds, two stories, two tongues, and, and that this is the challenge, right? To sort of, to live forgiven and from that graced place, bring forth with our mouths words of gratitude, not begrudgingness and judgment. Yeah, and I, I think that when you read those, you know, very Semitic images of just black and white, it's either, you know, w- brackish water or fresh water. You know, it's either peace, it's either love or hate, right? That, that's a strong way um, Semitic language works, and, and especially in the Gospels. And, you know, we see this in the parables, and we see this in these in these books, especially when they're very, when they're written, especially to Jewish uh, audience, in, in the case of James, I think that's definitely the case. And, and it's just a strong contrast. And I think that cause for us, calls for us to look inside ourselves. You know, does a spring pour forth this, these two kinds of water? You know, what are you? Are you a fig tree? Are you a grape tree? Are you bringing forth fresh water or good or, or bad water? You know, it's, it calls you to say, where am I? It's a, it's a call for sort of an introspection to see where you really are so that you might have that reflection of, okay, I've, I'm not acting appropriate to what I accept in my, my faith. And, and it is sort of a convicting kind of approach, I think. And there's a lot of that in the Bible. I think there's a lot of call for conviction, and that anticipates many things. And so certainly another, as you were saying, I think it's another step to say, okay, wait a minute. I do believe, you know, I do have faith. I do have peace with God. Now, why am I struggling <laughs> with with this inside, you know, and, and then all of the things we do to address the grace of God in our lives, even though we accept the fact that we're sinners continually. But I, I think in in these passages, the goal is sort of to you know to to put the <laughs> put the antiseptic on the wound really quickly, you know, and it's going to burn for a minute before you before you get over that. Yeah, and I think that in those moments of introspection, it's easy to get caught up in the quality of our faith or the subjective dimension of faith when really when we realize we're we're wayward and lost the key is the object of our faith right it's to turn your yeah. eyes upon jesus and so the the thing that will the the true north kind of thing you know i've heard that pilots oftentimes when they're learning to fly have this tough time when they have zero visibility to trust their instruments, right? And so sometimes out of cloud cover, they're they're tweaking, tweaking, they're having a tough time trusting the instruments, and they come out of a cloud cover and they're flying upside down, 
where they're just tweaking, tweaking, they're not trusting the instruments, tweaking, tweaking, and they don't even notice they've flown upside down. So it, it, yeah. the, the key is not our own subjectivity, but it's the object of our faith, you know, the, the yeah. author and pioneer of it that will, in the midst of the doubleness, double-mindedness, right, uh, his, it's his singular uh, focus that, that brings us into focus. Yeah, and I, a similar illustration is like the cave divers, right, that have to get disoriented because they don't know which way is up or down, and they have to watch and see which way air floats, you know, <laughs> the objective grounding of where things are moving. And if you don't look at that, you can't just feel it all the time. And so that's, uh, again, an, an additional illustration of the same point, which is if you look inside yourself to ground yourself, you're going to find a problem, which, of course, is really a, a word against our current culture, because I think that there's a lot of talk in terms of pop psychology today of look inside yourself, and that's the that's the place you find refuge. Well, in a sense, I mean, you, you do need to have a certain uh, inner peace. The Bible says, a steadfast of mind, thou will keep in perfect peace, Isaiah 26.3. But I think the idea here is you've got to look outside yourself in order to ground yourself in the objectivity of who Christ is, what he's accomplished, and who he is in relation to you by faith. And that's really where the next passage takes us, I think. to the gospel of Mark, we have chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. This is really the dead smack in the middle of Mark, a kind of turning point, climactic point, where Jesus is doing a little poll testing. You know, who do people say that I am? And people say, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah. And he says, who do you say I am? Peter says, you're the Messiah. And then the the secretive dimension, the messianic secret kicks in, just says, hush, hush, don't tell anybody. And then he begins to tell them what this means. Messiahship means he'll, that the religious authorities, the power that be will kill him and that he'll rise again. And he says this quite openly to his disciples. And Peter says, I'm not having it. And then he sternly rebukes Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. And he says that you're, he's setting his mind on things human, not things divine. And then he then he speaks to the crowd with his disciples, saying, if anyone wants to be my follower, they've got to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The ones who wants to save their life will lose it, and, and the ones who lose it will save it. So big sort of paradigmatic passage here in the Gospel of Mark. Mm, yeah. Important passage. Um it again, goes back to that objectivity of saying, I know who you are and I accept who you are. Um, Jesus, there's there's a call to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And yet, um, at de- various times in our lives, um, just as we see in the P- in case of Peter and the disciples, that doesn't, we don't understand fully what that means. We don't get the cross part of that. We don't get the future a suffering part of that. And yet that's there. I mean, that's really there. We can see it a little better now uh, than certainly where Peter was, but that's something that we don't don't see sometimes. And so at various stages of our Christian life, we're focused on Jesus is king, Jesus has triumphed, uh, Jesus is a savior, um, and we don't see that he's calling us as the last part of the passage says, if anyone 
If anyone, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Now remember, you know, Jesus came from Galilee, and when he says those things in Galilee, as he does, and in many places actually, uh, you know, the, the the historical sources tell us that because of various uprisings that happened, uh, there were hundreds and hundreds of people that were crucified all around these areas. So uh, in, in Galilee, is one example, um, there were hundreds of people crucified after an uprising that happened there. So the people in Galilee, when he said, you know, take up your cross, I mean, they had seen crosses that had dotted the road where they lived. I mean, they knew what it was. And one of the things that I've, I've learned about recently that it's a great, great study. Uh, if you read N.T. Wright's book on on the cross and on the, on the atonement, um, which I can't recall immediately the the title of it, um, it's like the, the day when the, the day the revolution began. I think that's what it is. And he talks a bit about the cross being the main object of, of crucifixion is the humiliation of the person being crucified, and he, he gives some great deal of detail about that. You know, the, it's just the humiliation of the process of it. And that is, you know, it's, it takes time. It doesn't happen quickly. You know, it's painful, of course, but it just degrades the person all the way down. And when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me, boy, he is really calling uh, with a strong voice toward a level of suffering. I can only imagine what people would have understood when they first heard that. I don't think that was a common phrase. I don't think that was a common call for for uh, leaders to make, to take up your cross and follow me. But this is the one that Jesus makes. So we don't always understand everything that Christ means to us at various stages of our Christian life, and certainly Peter didn't hear. Yeah, Bonhoeffer has that great phrase, when Christ calls a man, he calls him and bids him to die. And Robert Capon, in his great work on the parables, really thinks this passage is key in understanding that the parabolic teachings of Jesus, he, he says before this, we have mostly what he sees in the gospel traditions and, and calls the, the parables of the kingdom, where the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God is like this. And he says the kingdom is always mysterious, already present. It's not just apocalyptic in the future, but it's already present. And Catholic, it's kind of everywhere. It's here, there, and everywhere. And he says, you know, with those parables and up until like the feeding of the, of the multitudes, Jesus looks like a traditional Messiah, you know, and you could, you could, you could put your, tra- even for some of the off-putting things he says and does, you could still look at him as a traditional Messiah figure. And he says that that, that changes here and gives way to what he calls the parables of grace. Now, I'll just read what he says. He says that, you know, look next at Peter's confession and note how it brings together all these elements I've been expounding so far. Jesus' relationship to John the Baptist, his unique messiahship, and his bizarre linking of that messiahship to his own death and resurrection. This passage begins with Jesus asking his disciples who people say he is. They answer John the Baptist or Elijah or one of the prophets. In other words, they tell Jesus that he is being taken for someone who's part of the old, plausible, non-paradoxical order of things. Jesus then asks them who they say he is, and Peter answers the Christ. But Jesus rebukes them, telling them not to talk to anyone about him. Presumably, he does this to preclude their broadcasting their own old-style, non-paradoxical notions of messiahship. And he follows it up by predicting, in plain words, his coming death and resurrection. Peter, in turn, proving that Jesus was right not to trust his disciples' understanding of messiahship, rebukes Jesus. 
as Matthew has it, Peter simply cannot stand hearing such down talk from someone he's just proclaimed Messiah. Finally, Jesus once again rebukes Peter, get behind me, Satan, telling him he's out of step with God's way of doing the messianic business at hand. The whole exchange, as far as I am concerned, produces exactly the same reading on the weirdness scale as did the dialogue in John 6. It shows Jesus as a paradoxical dying and rising Messiah who fits no previous mold, and it continues to stress the off-putting strangeness he has been manifesting all through the sequence. And then he goes on later and says, with that much as stage setting, therefore, and with a paradoxical Messiah now standing in the wings, fully cognizant of death and resurrection as the modus operandi of his saving work, we are finally ready to hear, perhaps with newly opened ears, his parables of grace. Mm. Wow. That's what I think also when some people sort of say that the atonement is a later edition, that it's not in the heart of the Jesus tradition. That seems so misguided to me because it seems that it even at the heart of the teaching of Jesus is this becomes this increasing significance of death and resurrection, not just as the objective means by which redemption is procured and the subjective way it's experienced. Hmm. Well, certainly, I don't think you can take the cross out of out of the Gospels. I don't think you can take the cross out of the ministry of the apostles. That that's just a central truth. Now, how you interpret what happened at the cross that's a that's a matter for a lot of discussion over the history of the church. Again, I would uh, commend N.T. Wright's work on on this. I think he's got an interesting take on it. Um, I don't I don't think that uh, you know here we we have this strong sense of God calling people to realize that they are entering into the suffering that Christ himself uh, exemplified for us and did for us on the, on the basis of his work so that we might be right with God. And also there's a very cosmic dimension to it, and this is something you see, for example, in the book of Ephesians where he brings together heaven and earth through the cross. Um, the cross becomes the uniting point between heaven and earth. Now there's there's a bringing together, just like at the beginning of of, the, of uh, Genesis, there is the, the the earthly paradise, which is a place where God and man meet, and now the cross is the place where God and man meet, and now uh, there is the two dimensions of Christ and His life that is uh, in the heavenlies ruling, and now we meet with Him, and we're we're uniting heaven and earth. That's happening now, and I think that. Will con- will be consummated in the future, but it's certainly true now. Again, I get that from say Ephesians chapter one to three. Yeah, and to paraphrase and re- recast Michelle Obama's phrase, he goes <laughs> low that we might go high. You know, he's a base that we might be lifted up. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Thanks, Greg, for doing this. Yes, great, great to talk. Thanks for listening to the Synaxis Podcast. If you like what you heard, please go to iTunes, give it a rating, write a review, and subscribe, or pass it along to a friend via email, or say something about it on social media. All of those things help so much as we're just getting off the ground. Thanks to Greg Strawbridge for being my guest today, and thanks again to you all for listening. Until next time, fare thee well.